And as you're doing that, I want to just take a couple moments to introduce who's going to be speaking this morning. It's about four years ago. I was uh, sitting in my office when we were over at Shasta, and uh, someone from the front desk said, hey, there, there's a guy out here, and he says he's a new pastor in town, and he wants to meet you. And I'm like, okay, that sounds kind of interesting. I, I've never had that before, that a pastor shows up in town and wants to meet another pastor. And so uh, I came out to the front, and there's this guy, and I found out his name's Caleb Kaltenbach, and Caleb comes to my office, and we start talking, and I remember within the first 30 seconds of talking to Caleb, I knew I was going to love this guy. Any pastor that comes to a new town and then just on his own initiative comes to another church and introduces himself, I love that guy already because I already know he's got this idea that there is one church in our city with a lot of fellowships, but we are all on the same team and we are all working together, and I loved him right away. And so over the last four years, Caleb and I have had a good chance to really get to know each other over a lot of breakfast time together. And, and um, in fact, I mentioned this last week, and Caleb's here, and obviously I got a little, you know, I was here for service. I usually do come to both services. And uh, I got to cheat, and I got to hear the message. But, but what Caleb's going to share with you in just a few moments is not only something you understand from the scriptures, which is very important, but it's part of, it's, it's Caleb's journey in his life. He's going to talk about messy grace uh, today. And it's not just messy grace, the book that he wrote, but messy grace in terms of how God works in us because we're all a mess, and we all have to understand we're all a mess, and that means that other people are messes too, and they are worthy of God's love as much as we are. And so, would you welcome me this morning as we receive Caleb to come and share with us this morning about messy grace? So say good morning to Caleb Cottonback. Thank you. How are we doing today, Auntie? Well, that's a heavy table. That is... That's heavy or I'm weak or both is true. I have no idea. Hey, my name is Caleb. It's great to be with you. And I love Pastor John. You guys love John? Yeah? I mean, this guy over here, I mean, I love him. I mean, he is just almost the perfect person other than being a little too tall, too thin, too much hair. Other than that, he's a good dude. Um, <clears throat> this church is really special to me. And one of the reasons why it's special is back a long time ago, this is the place where my wife found Jesus. And so I'm, I'm just indebted to you guys and love you guys. And she traces her faith back here. Wishes she could be here with us today, but she can't. But thank you so much for having me. And thank you for your investment uh, back then in her. It really means a lot. And she would not be who she is without this church. And uh, I'm excited about what God is doing here. And I hope you are too. And as much as I talk about John and uh, you know getting to know him and becoming his friend, and I'm honored that he would be my friend. You got to know, he brags on you guys all the time. He really does. He thinks that you guys are awesome. So I feel like I know a lot about you, but I don't feel like you know much about me. So if it's okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. Actually, one thing. Okay, I love movies. Anybody else in here, you love to go see movies? And when I say I love to go see movies, I don't mean Redbox or Netflix or Hulu. I mean having the real experience of going to a dark movie theater and sitting next to people where you have no idea what their criminal background is whatsoever <laughs> for like two to three hours. And, and that's my idea of a great movie experience. And my wife and I, we used to go see movie after movie after movie, you know, back when, before we had children, when we actually had a life. We, we went and we did all these different things. And then we tried to get pregnant. And no matter what happened, we couldn't get pregnant. We tried, we tried, we tried. And we kind of handled our depression in, in different ways. My, you know, I, I was, you know, didn't handle it well, threw myself into my work, but she was much more destructive and started watching Hugh Grant movies over and over again and Twilight and chick flicks. And she's like, that is so destructive. We've got to get you pregnant one way or another. 
And so we ended up uh, going to this fertility clinic, and we got pregnant with my son Joel on our very first time, and my daughter Rachel on our second time. And, and I love both of them equally, but I got to tell you about Joel's birth because he was the firstborn. When we first had Joel, we did things that we never did, okay? I'd get home uh, from, from work. At that time, I worked at uh, Shepherd of the Hills up in Port Ranch, Chatsworth area. We lived out here. I'd go to Babies R Us, and I'd troll it by myself for like half an hour. I was the creepy single guy walking up and down the aisle because I could not wait to be a dad. And when we were invited over to people's houses for dinner, I mean, literally, we monopolized conversations, you know, took them over, you know, talked about our pregnancy. We lost friends, and who cares? We'd get new friends, right? <laughs> Other pregnant friends. And we couldn't wait to get to the hospital. I knew what to expect because I had seen the movies, right? I knew that when the baby came out, the baby would look pristine clean, and the baby would, you know, just smile, and there'd be this light from heaven underscoring John Williams' Star Wars music, and the baby would grasp my pinky finger and first words in that moment would be, Father, I knew it. That is not what happened. (laughs) When we got there, everything was going great until the pain hit my wife, and then she became somebody with whom I had not exchanged vows with. (laughs) And I put my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her, and she said, don't you touch me right now. And I said, okay, Emily Rose, Linda Blair, whatever your name is, I'm going to be over here. And then the doctor came in and gave her drugs, and she went back to loving God and others at that point. (laughs) And again, everything was going great until it was time for my son to come into the world. And so over here in Simi Valley Hospital, the doctor comes in and puts on what looks like body armor and a welding mask, and (laughs) the nurses are putting on what looks like a hazmat outfit. And I went up to the doctor, because I'm the only one that's not covered, and I said, is something getting ready to explode? She said, don't worry about it, Dad, you're fine. The doctor gets in the football position to catch my son as he comes in the world. And literally, my expression went from this to, oh, ah, my goodness. I mean, I saw things I didn't even know existed that day. (laughs) He came out, and he was a a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for. His head was like rectangular slash cone-shaped, and... I didn't know the human head could do that, and he had this gunk on him, and, uh, you know, far from any kind of epic music or cute baby noises, he didn't even say my name, he came out, he made the most annoying noise in the world, he was like, and I was like, put him back in, he's not happy, he needs more time, and, and, you know, the doctor wrapped him up in a, in a blanket and gave him to me. And you got to understand, a lot of the times I don't have a filter, and I held him. And they said, what do you think? I said, my first words about my son, he looks like a turtle. <laughs> and, and when my daughter was born, she looked like this big, red, juicy ladybug. But in that moment, something, something happened. And if you're a parent, you get it. If you're young and not a parent, you'll get it one day possibly, but, but here's what happened. In that moment, it didn't matter how messy my son was. It didn't matter anything. It didn't matter his head. It didn't matter the weird smell he had. It didn't matter anything. I was looking at him, and in that moment, I loved my child. And in that moment, I loved my daughter, and I knew in that moment there was, I would do anything I could for my children. And I don't know where that love came from. It just appeared out of nowhere. And you may or may not have heard this before, but I want to let you know that's the same way that God feels about you. And you may not believe it. Because here's what we get thrown in our face all the time. Society loves to define us and label us and categorize us. 
They love to say, you know, you've got issues with your job. You can't hold a job. You've got financial issues. You've got marriage issues. You've got issues with cutting. You've had this many abortions. You've had this many divorces. You're having issues with this kind of sickness or you have this kind of a disorder. Society loves to label us and categorize us and define us because when we do that, it's easy to gloss over people and not even consider them. But the great thing about God, and if you're not following him, this might be a great reason to, is that God peels off the labels, takes us out of the categories, looks past the definitions, and says, that's my child. Regardless of how messy or the issues you have or the issues you have that nobody else knows about. But you think about when you lay your head by yourself on the pillow and you know that God knows, I just want to let you know that God loves you because here's the truth. God loves messy people. And we need to own that because the first two letters of messy are M-E, me, messy, right? I love that. I love the fact that God loves messy people because that means that God loves me. However, God loves messy people. Sometimes I have issues with that. God loves messy people means that God loves that person over there, Bob. You heard about Bob? My goodness, I don't understand how God could love Bob. Because I know that Jesus said in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but that was before Bob was born. If Bob had been born, Jesus would have made an exception. Would have said, for God so loved the world, except for Bob. Did you get in a conversation with Bob in the workplace? I mean, he just talks, talks, talks. You know, he just vomits up all of his emotions all over you. And it's like trying to get out of that conversation is chewing your leg out of a bear trap. You got Carol over here. I mean, Carol, you tell her the wrong thing. She gets mad at you. She just gossip, 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 gossip. I don't understand how God could love Carol. I mean, some of the times, these are the people we have to deal with, the difficult people. How can we love the people that are hard to get along with, that have a different ethic than we do, that make... Uh, that have a different moral scale than we do, to speak from a different moral authority? How do we love the people that vote differently from us, that look different, that, that have made different life choices that we don't agree with? How do we love the people that are not like us? Because it's hard to love messy people, right? Because some of the times those people live in your house, right? You ever gotten in a fight on your way to church in the car? That's fun, right? You're driving over to church and you're just fighting in the family and fighting and everything and you pull in the church parking lot and you're like, okay, everybody, this is not over. We're talking about this again. Game face. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah. Right? Then you're sitting next to your spouse or your kid and, you know, elbow them. You know, listen to that sermon right now. That's for you. God's talking to you right now. And, and while there are people that really injured us and hurt us and, and made us feel horrible. And these are messy people. What I want to talk about today is how do you really love the people that make different life choices, that have a different ethic? These people that you might be related to, you might even live with, you might, you know, I mean, work with. They might be in your neighborhood. How do you love other messy people like you? Well, you see, when I became a Christian, one of the greatest things I love about the Bible is I learned that the Bible is not really a collection of irrelevant, boring things written by dead people, okay? The Bible is actually, it's like a library that you get to have in your hands. 
And it's so relevant, and we don't need to try to make the Bible relevant. We just need to show people how it's relevant for today because it was written by a God who is timeless, and that's why it's timeless. And so to help us, I want us to join Jesus at a particular time in his life, and we're going to be looking at a story about Jesus that's a true story. It's from uh, the Gospel of John, the book of John. It, it, John is the fourth book of the New Testament. And what I love about John, it's one of my favorite books in the whole Bible, is that John was an eyewitness to everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said. And because he wanted his community back then to know about what Jesus did and said, and I think he probably knew that people would be reading some of what he wrote later on, he wrote down a lot of the things that Jesus did and said that some of his other contemporaries had not written down so that we would have a record of it. And there's one particular instance in Jesus's life that John records, nobody else records it, where I think that we're going to be able to glean some wisdom from Jesus on how do we love the people that are different, that are difficult, the people that we may not like, you know, people kind of like you and me, except we just don't want to own it. So if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, go ahead and turn to John chapter 8. And if you don't have your Bibles or your mobile devices, that's just fine because we're going to have the words uh, up on the screen here, just right here as we read. So let's take a look at John chapter 8, beginning with verse 2. It says, Early in the morning, he, Jesus, came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? I just want to finish by reading the very first part of verse 6. It says that this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, if you're not familiar with reading the Bible, let me just kind of set the scene for you, if that's okay. You have Jesus teaching the crowds of people and his students or what we would call disciples are there. And then you have the scribes and the Pharisees or in some of your translations, it may say the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, the teachers of the law, they were like the Pharisees, except they were the Pharisees on steroids, okay? They had the whole Old Testament memorized and they had commentaries on the Old Testament memorized. They had the commentaries on the commentaries on the Old Testament memorized. I mean, obviously, they had no life. They were 85, living in their mother's basement still, playing with their pet tarantula. I don't know. But that's what they did. They were like the Bible college and the seminary professors. But over here, you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were like the celebrity pastors of the day. We think about, because we've seen in some of the uh, Jesus movies, that there were like 12 or 20 Pharisees. Actually, there were some 6,000 Pharisees roaming around the land of Judea back in Jesus' day. And most of them did not like Jesus because the Pharisees led people from fear. And they said, if you want a relationship with God, you've got to keep these lists of rules. You keep God happy, you can have a relationship with him. And I don't know if you noticed, but if you lead from fear, and if you get people to follow you because you're, they're afraid, or you uh, leverage the fear of society for your own gain and power, you can get people to do horrible things. People are easily controlled because of fear. But here comes Jesus, and Jesus says, no, I'm going to lead from grace. I'm going to lead from love, and I'm going to lead from the truth of God's word. Because the Bible says to fear two things, God and nothing. And so they felt threatened by him. They wanted to kill him. And so they set Jesus up. They found this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And we have no idea how they found her. They're creepers, obviously, right? And they take this woman, 
and they drag her through town, you know, exposing and humiliating her, put her in front of Jesus, and they say, in the law, Moses commanded us to sow such women. Now, what do you say? Now, they're right. Back in Deuteronomy 22 and other Old Testament passages, Moses does say that if you catch a man and a woman in the act of adultery, you can take them outside the city gates and stone them. I mean, that's a different context, different time. Who knows? Maybe John will preach a sermon on that one time. That'll be fun, John. That'll be great. But that was a different time and context. But did you hear what I said? Moses said, inspired by God, if you find a man and a woman, and I read this story, and I'm like, where's the dude? I mean, did he get a get-out-of-jail-free card? Now, I guess what makes me mad is that they don't care about this woman's restoration, her reconciliation. They don't care about what she's been through. They don't care about mentoring her or helping her or coaching her or anything like that. They are using her as much as the man who was having an affair with her was using her in this moment. Now, I don't care who you are. That's messed up. Big time. Now, if that was me and I was addressing this, I'd probably be emotionally reactive. Um, how many of you are emotionally reactive? And most of you will not admit it. And the person next to you is like, put your hand up. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you see, Jesus, he does something a little awkward. And you say, Caleb, don't call what Jesus does awkward. Well, it is. I'm not insulting him. I didn't say it was bad awkward. I'm just saying it's awkward. Jesus does something here, and, and, and it looks awkward, but every time Jesus does something awkward, it's always to prove a point. Like, you know, for instance... Remember when the guy was blind and Jesus, you know, heals him, but here's how he does it. He spits in the ground and wipes mud on his eyes as opposed to somebody he healed and he wasn't even in the same town. He's just like that. It's like, wow, Jesus, you could have done that in a less gross way for this blind guy, but he was proving a point. And this is what happens here. Look at Jesus's response at the end of verse six. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. That's awkward. You say, no, it's not. And I say, yes, it is, because you've just read the Bible a million times. When was the last time you were in disagreement with your spouse or your friend, and you said, hold on. <laughs> I tried it with my wife, Amy, last week. I do not recommend it. <laughs> and so a lot of people are trying to figure out, what was it that Jesus was writing in the ground? Some people say maybe the sins of the people in the crowd. Other people think maybe he was writing down verses of Scripture. But I found this really interesting verse all the way back in the Old Testament, written by a guy named Jeremiah, who was a preacher, what they called a prophet in Old Testament times. Here's something he said. See if you can make a connection. Jeremiah 17, 13 says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame, and those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Or in the original Hebrew, it could be translated the ground, the dust, the dirt, or the mud. Why? Because they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living water. See, if I was a betting person, I'd be willing to bet that Jesus was writing the names of the Pharisees in the dirt in that moment. I'd be willing to bet that Jesus was saying, you think that you are close with God because you're keeping all the rules, even though you can't, but you've actually forsaken God because you don't really understand the truth because if you did, you would also have grace and love and compassion along with the truth. I think it's brilliant. I tell people all the time, look, listen, you may not agree with Jesus, but he's got mad skills. You cannot out-argue Jesus. But they don't get it. So Jesus has to go to the next level. You can tell they don't get it. Look at verse 7. It says, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Verse 8 concludes this part. It says, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, this is brilliant. You see, they believed back then what the leadership of this church believes, that God is the only sinless being in existence. He is the most powerful being. He is the sovereign being. There is no sin or wrong or evil in God. He is perfect. And therefore, Jesus knew that if he asked this question, he would have them in a checkmate. You see, because he knew that they wouldn't pick up a rock for two reasons. Number one, if they picked up a rock and they threw it and they claimed to be sinless, they believed, their theology taught them that they had sin, and so they would be lying. And by the way, out of the 613 commands that God wrote, he thought that lying was such a big deal that he put in the top 10, right? You remember Charlton Heston style, thou shalt not bear false witness. But he also knew that they wouldn't throw a rock for another reason. If they picked up a rock and if they threw it, and if they claimed to be sinless, that very rock that they threw claiming to be sinless would be used to kill them. Because if you say you're sinless, you're claiming to be God. And claiming to be God is a capital punishment too. I told you, you don't want to get in an argument with Jesus. He's got mad skills. And this they can't come back from. And I love this. You can see the the proof here in verse 9. Look at this. This is great. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left with the woman standing before him. Can you imagine how she felt in that moment? thinking that she was almost going to die, being humiliated and standing before Jesus in an opportunity where where she can receive grace. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And the beginning of verse 11 says, no one, Lord. And so the whole reason why we went through this passage is to get to the very last part of verse 11. If you feel comfortable underlining, highlighting, if you brought your Bible or something like that, If you want to write this down, remember it. This is Jesus' formula for how we love people who are difficult, who are different from us, people that we don't always get along well with. This is it. It's actually one sentence in the original language. Here's what Jesus says. "Neither, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That is Jesus' formula. Neither do I condemn you. Grace. Now go and sin no more, truth. Jesus says that if you want to love people who are different from you, you've got to live in grace and truth. As a matter of fact, John chapter 1, beginning with verses 14 and 17, say that Jesus Christ came full of both grace and truth. Now, you might be thinking, especially if you're a Christian, that's easy for him. I mean, he's God. He's got a corner market on the deal, right? It's easy to do that when you're God. But for us, it's harder. And for us, we take sides. I'm willing to bet there, I can divide this this room into two. There are some of you, you're all about the grace or the love or the mercy. Others of you, you're all about the truth or following the rules or boundaries because rules were made to control the fun, right? I mean, pretty much that's it. But I want to make a statement. You may not agree with it, and that's okay. My wife doesn't agree with most of what I say. But I'm going to say it anyway. That if you take sides between grace and truth, and you say, I'm all about the grace, I'm all about the truth, that's unchristlike. It's immature. And you might be a Christian, but never call yourself a mature Christian if you take sides. Because the most Christ-like thing you can do is to say, I'm about the grace and the truth. That's what Jesus did. Because, you know, if you say you're all about the grace, it's like holding a rubber band from one side. It's weak, it's flimsy. There's no power there, you know? 
it's like when you say you're all about the grace, and we love these people who are all about the grace, but they're annoying, right? They're the ones who say God loves you, God loves everybody, just sweep it underneath the rug, God loves, God loves, and I'm convinced their version of God is a cross between uh, Buddy the Elf and Olaf. That, that's what I'm convinced when they hear God, that's what I'm convinced they hear, okay? But then over here, you've got people who are all about the truth, and they know the Bible well, and these people want you to know that they know the Bible well. And very rarely are these people happy. And they are so spiritually mature that they add extra syllables to Jesus' name. It's not Jesus, it's Jesus when they talk about the Lord like this. <laughs> but it's weak, it's flimsy. There's no power there. But check out where the power is. If you say, I'm about the grace and the truth, where's the power? The power lies in the tension of the two. If you want to be powerful, you live in the tension. And there's a name for this tension. It's love. You see, I believe that love is the tension between grace and truth. And when you refuse to live in the tension between the two, it's not only unchristlike, but you're refusing love and you're running away from it. And you feel this tension all the time. And love is not always flowery feelings, right? You feel this tension. My friend is doing this, but God said to do this in his word, but my friend keeps on doing this, but God you know, says this, and I'm struggling with this, but God's word says this, and we feel this. It's tension, but love is the tension of grace and truth, and you've got to stay here. And if you don't agree with me, just listen to me on this, okay? And John may or may not agree with me. He'll tell you next weekend. But <laughs> if you don't like tension, Christianity is probably not the faith for you. Probably time to move on. You say, Caleb, why would you say that? Really? Because we believe in one God but the Trinity, like there's no tension. We believe that God inspired the Bible, but people wrote it, that Jesus is fully God and fully human, that God is fully in control, but he gives us free will or responsibility. We, we believe that, that death and evil were defeated at the cross and the resurrection, but not yet destroyed. Love God, love people. You can be a good preacher and still have hair. Come on. <laughs> there is tension in our faith that you already live with every day. Why should you not live with tension when it comes to other people? So if love is the tension of grace and truth, what does that look like? How do we apply that? Let me tell you about my story, if that's okay, real quick. Um, when I was two, my parents and I, we lived in Columbia, Missouri. They are both professors teaching at schools like the University of Missouri-Columbia and Stevens College and different places like that. But when I was two, they got a divorce and they both went into same-sex relationships. And so my whole childhood, growing up, I was raised in the LGBTQ community. And my dad had several different friends and never a monogamous partner. I found out about him like right after I graduated from college or whatever. But um, my mom, she went into a, a same-sex relationship, a monogamous relationship with a woman named Vera. They were together for 22 years until Vera died of cancer. They moved to Kansas City where Vera opened up her practice as a psychologist. And they, they were activists. They joined the board of directors for GLAD, Gay and Lesbian Awareness Against Discrimination or Defamation. Um, they took me with them to activist events. Uh, I grew up as a young kid going to gay bars and pride parades and... Uh, clubs and parties and campouts. And I remember when I was in elementary school, I was marching in this one pride parade. And at the end of the parade, there were all these quote-unquote Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you, turn or burn. 
And when people from the parade would actually go try to talk to them, they would get sprayed with water and urine. And, and I looked at my mom as a young kid. I said, why are they acting like that? And she said, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. And I saw that proved time and time again. I remember there was a, there was a young man in my mom's community who uh, contracted the AIDS virus and died of AIDS. And we went to go see him not too long before he died. And if you had seen this guy in his prime, I mean, he looked like Floyd Mayweather. I mean, he was you know, strong, built, and just think the opposite of me in every way. And that is what this guy looked like. <laughs> but I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who's died from AIDS. It's a horrible, horrible way to die. And he literally was like 90 pounds, a shell of the man that he used to be, shivering underneath the blankets. And on the other side of the room was his Christian family, with their big old Bibles out, plastered up against the wall like they were waiting for a firing squad to come. And he would ask for something, and they would come over and give him a drink, and they wouldn't talk to him or us or touch him or anything. And I looked at my mom again as a young kid. I'm like, why? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians. Christians hate gay people. And while I had been to church here and there, I made the decision at that point, I never wanted the name Christian to ever define me. And so by the time I was 16 and got to high school, um, I, my worldview, I had no real center worldview. I was stinking out at night. I was living it up. Um, I mean, my hair was down to here. Since then, the Lord removeth and addeth, and it's not funny. It's, I mean, we talk about that all the time, don't we? But, you know, I hated Christians. And so this high schooler, who was leading a Bible study for high schoolers at his house, in the basement of his house said, why don't you come to Bible study with us? And I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to go, and I'm going to be a pretend Christian. I'm going to be a ninja Christian, and I'm going <laughs> to learn about their faith, and then I'm going to dismantle it. And I had never owned a Bible, so I grabbed an old dusty Bible that my dad had off the shelf and went over to their house. Now, you got to understand, at the time of being 16, I had never stepped foot in an evangelical Christian household, conservative Christian household, or even a, a Catholic household whatsoever. And, and I love Bible bookstores, so don't take offense to what I'm about to say. Okay? But God bless these people. It looked like they had raided a Bible bookstore <laughs> of everything they had. We walked in, and it had the same potpourri smell. You know what I'm talking about when you walk into a Bible bookstore and there's the potpourri smell. And, and then over here, they had... The, the nasty Christian mints, remember the testaments? It, it tastes like a, a, a mixture of peppermint and cyanide. And, and then they had all the different like Bible bookstore pictures on the wall. And I'm like, look over my friend, I'm like, why do these people have framed pictures of sheep and lions on their wall with Bible verses? There's a shepherd kid holding a lamb? What is this place? And I'm like, if I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? Because I'm out. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> of which, to this day, I do not have one in my household, by the way. And so we went down to the basement, and everybody was reading out of 1 Corinthians, and I was playing the role of a Christian very well because I was in 1 Chronicles. And everybody reads these nice verses from Paul. They get to me. I read a verse about somebody getting impaled. And they say, Caleb you know, where are you? I, I mean, I said, I'm in First Chronicles. They said, oh, you're in the Old Testament. I said, so there's a new one. There's updated 2.0. I had no clue. And, and yet, I didn't let that get me down. I kept on going because here's what I learned. I, I, I just was like, man, I fell in love with Jesus because here's what I learned about Jesus, okay? I learned that Jesus had very deep biblical beliefs. 
And he also had very deep and does have very deep expectations for how you and I should live our lives, what we would call holy living or sanctification. But he also had very deep and meaningful relationships with people that nobody else would, those who are pushed to the side of society. And I was like, anybody that is just right down the middle like that, I can get on board with. And I knew that if I was going to become a Christian, I had to study what the Bible had to say about gender, relationships, marriage, homosexuality, because obviously that would be an issue, right? And so I did. And I came to this conclusion that I still hold today, that God designed sexual intimacy for the expression in marriage between a man and a woman, and anything outside of that is not part of God's design or sin, which that literally means falling short. It's something that we all do. But I also came to this conclusion, which I still hold today, that our biblical beliefs should never give us permission to devalue another human being. Okay? That if anything, your biblical beliefs should drive you to another person, not from them. That our differences should drive us to people, not from them. That we should learn and discover about who they are and create dialogue, which we really don't have much of in our society today. And I was like, wow. And so I was nervous. You say, Caleb, why were you nervous? If you can imagine how a gay or a same-sex attracted teenager feels when they're about to come out to their conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old about ready to come out as a Christian to my three gay parents. And they kicked me out. It's interesting. My whole life they preached tolerance. But when... I believe something differently. They said, you're out. Because again, remember what I said? Fear causes us to do horrible things. To quote a little green guy named Yoda from Star Wars. Hey, don't, don't rip on Yoda. He's awesome. He says, you know, he says, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate always leads to suffering. And yet, when we are afraid of people, it's easier to push them away. But you know what? I went and I spent the night at other friends' houses until my parents let me come back in. And any time I got home from school, I opened up the Bible and I just read it. I couldn't get enough of the Bible. And I learned that there are some things that are hard to forgive, that we can't do that on our own, and some people that are hard to love, that we can't do that on our own. But we can, if we lean into God's power, that God and our relationship with him, it gives us margin. It gives us the power to be able to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. And so when I graduated, I went down to Bible college in Southern Missouri. And the cool thing about going to Bible college in Southern Missouri um, is that there are all these like small churches all around uh, where we were. Um, and you can cut your teeth on preaching pretty early on. My second or third week of Bible college, my freshman year, um, you know, I preached my first sermon at this uh, church in Hepler, Kansas. Still remember the name of it, Hepler Christian Church. Uh, the church had six people in it. The youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group. It was going to be great. It's going to be like a, a youth group of like 40-year-olds or something. I have no clue. But then, the second church I preached at, I preached there for about 18 months. There were 50 people in the town. 25 of them were in our church. Um, I'm convinced that we were the largest church per capita in the world at that time. We had half our town, one for Christ. And, and so I went and I preached and, you know, and did funerals and hospitals. And funerals really hurt us because we dropped down from 25 to 24. Um, but then finally I was able to convince my mom to come to church. 
there's a huge church attendance bump for us. We went from 24 to 25. It's one for the books. And everybody was kind of indifferent towards her. And I was like, man, that's weird. I thought they'd be different, especially after preaching for 18 months on love and grace and truth and compassion and kindness. And the next Sunday when I showed up, there were two elders waiting for me on the front doorstep, and they said, we'd like to talk to you. And they took me to, you know, the back room. We had two rooms in the church. We had the front room. We had the back room. The back room was for children, but there were no children in the town whatsoever. It was like a creepy Nightmare on Elm Street setting. Like, there's, we hadn't touched the children's ministry stuff for like 10 years or maybe more than that. And so they sat down and they said, if you want to keep coming here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, well, I don't like you, so I quit. And they said, no, you can't quit because we got to have you preach today. I said, oh, you don't want that. After this, you do not want me to preach, trust me. Out of all the things, they said, no, you got to get up there and preach. And so I did. I got up there and preached. I took my sermon and ripped it up. It was on fasting. Who cares about that anyway, right? And I got up there, and I preached the sermon on the love of God, and I walked out of that church, and I got in my car and drove down the gravel road, and I said, God, if you ever give me the chance to be able to lead a church, I want a church filled with broken, messy people, filled with people who are cutting, filled with people who are struggling with their sexuality, filled with people who have had abortions, who are having abortions, who are divorced five times, six times, who have been remarried so many different times, people who can't handle a job, people who think they have it all together, people who are struggling with disorders, people who are this and that, because that is what the church is, people. The church is really a beautiful mosaic of broken lives. The God has grafted together to glorify himself. Okay, hear me out on this. The church is not a members-only country club. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. Okay? We are known for what we are for, not what we are against. And, And here's what I really believe. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin and my sin and my shame and guilt and your sin and shame and guilt. And that when he was buried, those were left there. And when he was raised to the newness of life and resurrected on the third day, that he came up, but everything we've ever done remained in the grave, dead forever. Okay? And he died for people, for everyone, to be included in the church. And I do not believe that Jesus Christ died died for a church that is masquerading as a church when they're really a Pharisee factory. I don't believe that at all. And if there are some of us like that in here, I think we've got to repent. And so I did what any normal sane person would do when they graduated from Bible College in Southern Missouri. I moved as far away as I could. I came out here to California in 1999. And for 11 years, I was on staff at Shepherd of the Hills in Porter Ranch, Chatsworth area. And um, amazing things happened. I got to serve as a young adult pastor, loved that, and got married. It was beautiful, beautiful. She's, my wife is gorgeous. She, you know, taller, and it's just not hard to be taller than me, and she is, you know, she's tan, and she works out, and I mean, she's a muy caliente Latina. <laughs> and in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Fester and Dr. Evil. She had no clue, okay? <laughs> this right here, this is the eye candy she wakes up to every morning. She's a lucky lady, okay? This is what she gets to enjoy all the time. And during that time, my mother's partner died of cancer. And unless a miracle happened, she died without Christ. And in 2010, we moved to Dallas, Texas. 
some of you are like, why'd you move to Texas from California? Well, we did it so you wouldn't have to. But <laughs> we were there. We were there for three and a half years before we moved back in the summer of 2013, back here to God's country. But we were out there. And when we were out there, both of my parents, separately of one another, moved to be closer to our family. And then they said, can we start coming to your church? We want to be close to your family. And I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know if the walls would bleed, the pig would fly, who knows. I said, you know what I believe about relationships and sexuality? Yes. And so they came to church. And as opposed to my mom's last experience at this church in the middle of Missouri, this church in Texas, they loved them. And they, they just loved on them. And that doesn't mean that there weren't people in the church that didn't have issues and you know really weren't willing to love other people. But the majority of people loved them to the point where two weeks before we left to move back here to California, both of my parents submitted their lives to Christ. And I just think to myself, man, how, how does that happen? It's messy grace. I mean, God's grace is perfect. Our lives are messy. And when God's perfect grace hits our messy lives, it looks like it's messy grace. And if you don't agree with me, go read the very last book or very last chapter of Jonah. And, and, and you'll see that we're all a product of messy grace. But how do we live in this tension? If, if love is the tension of grace and truth, and I'm willing to bet that all of you have people in your lives like this, how do you live in the tension of grace and truth with these people. Well, here are just five things I'd say. You can trust these if you want, write them down, take a picture. If not, don't worry about it. But here's the first thing I would say, okay? Trust God's word over society's latest opinion, okay? Trust what God says, not society's latest opinion, okay? Jesus trusted God's word in John chapter 8, but he also did not trust society's opinion, which was get rid of this woman, treat her like trash, and stone her. Okay? If you base your ethics and your morality, if you base all of your beliefs on society, you will consistently be changing what you believe, and that's exhausting. Why? Because even though foundationally society is always the same, society is always changing. Why? Because society is made up of people. And people are always changing. And people are crazy. <laughs> right? You've seen Facebook. They are insane. <laughs> and if you always base what you, what, what you believe on the latest trend of society, you're going to be baseless eventually. Which is what's great about God's word is that it is timeless. It is written by an eternal, timeless God. And this is the foundation that never changes. Our theology never changes. The way we may present the gospel does, but not what we believe, okay? I, I kind of already said this, this one. I'm going to say it again, okay? A theological conviction shouldn't be a catalyst to treat someone less. Okay, your theology should drive you to love other people, right? I mean, isn't that what Matthew 5, 38 through 48 says? I mean, if I could cut any passage out of the Bible, God gave me permission, it would be that one right there. You know, because it's hard when Jesus says, you know, you've heard there was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not take revenge. Oh, but Jesus, it's easier to do that. You've heard, hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you're like, Ugh. okay, again, I wish it said, love some of your enemies, a few, <laughs> not that person right there. But Jesus says, no, because here's the deal. Maturity is found in living in the tension of grace and truth. 
And maturity is not found by how much you know, but by the compassion you show. And you can only show true godly compassion in the tension of grace and truth. Okay, so a theological conviction shouldn't be a catalyst to treat someone less. Okay, the other one, the third thing I want you to know is think deeper about the person, not differently about theology. You see, when somebody we love comes out to us, or when somebody we love is making a decision that we believe is, is not ethical or is toxic or something like that, usually we'll do one of two things, and, and this will usually show if we're taking sides and not standing in grace and truth. You know, we will either stand over here on the truth side and we will just stand in our position and say, God's word says this and I shall alienate thee until thee agrees with me. And and yet, no, that's not what Jesus said. I mean, are there some people in our life that are so toxic we need distance? Yeah, but I'm willing to bet those are few and far between. And again, your theology should cause empathy and love for another person. But then some of us over here, we will think that the only way to keep the relationship with somebody like that is to change what we believe to align with their belief. And again, you're always going to be changing your beliefs if you change all the time. What I'm asking you to do is stand firm in your theology, think deeper about the person, right? Like what Jesus did in John 8. He didn't change his theological belief, but he thought deeper about this woman. See, he knew what many of you know today, that no person is shallow. We may act shallow, but we're not. Every single person you see today is really a conglomeration of their experiences and their pains and their joys and their hopes and their dreams, their failures and their successes and their upbringing and their family systems and their work systems. And we are all a big amalgam of all these things. Don't categorize, label, or define people because that dismisses who God has created them to be and the pain that people are carrying around with them. Think deeper about the person, but that does not require a shift in your theology. The fourth thing I'd say is this, and this is a huge one for me, okay? Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. Embrace the difference between acceptance and approval. These are two very different things. Some some people, maybe some of you think they're the same thing. They're not, okay? Acceptance is more about empathy. It's about loving the person for who they are, where they are, knowing that you can't change them, and you choose to love them despite their messiness. That's acceptance. And by the way, can I make the argument to say that I think acceptance, a.k.a. empathy, is a biblical mandate, I think. I think if we're not empathetic, it's a sin. Because empathetic is not a path to, quote-unquote, theological liberalism, empathetic. Empathy allows you to build bridges with other people. Okay, I mean, if you don't agree, how else would you explain Matthew 5.46 when Jesus said, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Anyone can do that. How do you explain Romans 12, 9 through 18, especially Romans 12, 18, when Paul says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So you're telling me that Jesus and Paul say that love and peace with other people is not dependent on them, but on me. Absolutely. Because God has never held you accountable for something that someone else did. God holds you accountable for how you manage your emotions, for how you handle your reactions, for how you treat people. Because you can have... Uh, orthodox theology, but commit heresy by how you treat another individual. Okay? Approval is different than acceptance. Approval is throwing your support behind a life decision of an individual. But a life decision of the individual is not the individual. The individual is different. And, and you do that all the time. You have people in your life that you're in a relationship with, and you don't agree with them on everything, but you still love them. 
Why? Because real love is not based on agreement. That's cheap love. Real love is based on acceptance, not agreement. Okay, and the final, the last thing I would say is this. Okay, quit trying to fix people. Just point them to Jesus and grace and truth. Because I've looked at this, and there's nowhere in the Bible where it's ever said, fix somebody's sexual orientation, bring them to church. Fix somebody's drinking habit, bring them to church. Fix somebody's narcissism, bring them to church. Fix somebody's relationships, bring them to church. Tell them about Jesus. It's never been your job to fix people. Okay, because you can't. People are too complex. I can't fix my parents. I love my parents through its messy grace. I love them. They don't believe everything I do, but they believe in Jesus, and they're not in same-sex relationships, and they go to Bible study or church when they can, and my dad has Alzheimer's and is in assisted living. My mom is in assisted living, and they still are same-sex attracted, but they're not acting on it. How does all that go together? I don't know. God's never called me to fix another person. And you and I, if we're Christians, here's the deal. We've already admitted we can't fix ourselves. <laughs> because there's this thing called repentance, right? Yeah. And repentance is where you have to say, I've been living away from God, and I can't fix my own life. I choose to live for God. It's a spiritual discipline. It's a life dedication that you and I have to make. We can't even fix our own lives. And yet somehow we think that it, uh, it stabilizes our insecurity to try to fix other people. You can't do that. You're not that good. No offense. Okay? Love is the tension of both grace and truth. Live in that tension. Confuse people. Be gracious when they think you should be truthful, and be truthful when they think you should be gracious. When you confuse people, you're more like Jesus. Why? He did. All the time. See, I believe that God loves messy people. God, that means that God loves you and me. That means that God loves those people as well. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the leadership here. Thank you for Pastor John. And I just pray that those of us who are following you, that we will be people who repent of our issues with others. That we will stop taking sides and live in grace and truth. And I pray for people who are invited here today. Maybe they showed up at church and didn't know what they were getting into. But maybe they would see that this is a church that they can come back to. This is a church where it's okay not to be okay. And we're going to walk with each other in grace and truth as we pursue you. Help us to be people of messy grace. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Just say thank you to Caleb.